Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Uh, welcome to episode 17 of Chris's on Infinite Earths here at the Chris and Reggie channel. You can find this program every other Wednesday at chrisandreggie.com, chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and all the places where noise is. Uh, this week, we got a special book. I say that every week, but uh, <laughs> I really mean it this time, I promise. Uh, this one is, uh, this episode is going to be chock full of uh, Christery, so uh, it's another that I don't expect too many people to uh, flock to. But uh, we're going to be discussing uh, the basically the way I got into comics. Uh, we're going to discuss ElfQuest, uh, number one. It's the 25th anniversary edition from DC because, uh, well, you know, Chris is on Infinite Earths is a DC blog. And uh, this book actually marked the first time on the blog that I sort of tested the limits of uh, what I could and uh, couldn't review. Uh, you know, I, I did set a... Uh, I did kind of govern myself to just doing DC Comics, which might be a silly and arbitrary rule, uh, and, you know, I fully admit that, but uh, I'm the kind of guy who can, who just works a little bit better under constraint. Um, a little too much freedom, and I'll wind up doing nothing at all, so I, uh, I kind of like my little, it's got to be a DC book, it's got to be a book that I own, <laughs> sort of uh, parameters that I set, but uh, ElfQuest marked... A, uh, a little shift in the blog because uh, initially I had just assumed it would be straight superhero fare and uh, because I figured that's what people would want to read and uh, at the time it was really just what I was interested in writing about uh, when I reminded myself that there was uh, DC Comics ElfQuest books it just uh, really broadened my horizons and gave me uh, a new uh, just a new thing to write about, and uh, something that I consider a touchstone in uh, not only my comics collecting career, but in my life in general. You see, uh, ElfQuest, without ElfQuest, I wouldn't be on this mic right now. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have, you know, several rooms in my house dedicated to very flammable <laughs> collectibles. Um, but, you know, let's, let's just get into it here, uh. We moved, my family moved to uh, Long Island in uh, 1990, sorry, 1988. I was uh, eight years old, just about to turn nine. And uh, if you listen to the Laurel and Hardy episode, you'll know that uh, that's, you know, that's the first time we got cable. It was the first time I was introduced to the, uh, to the magic that is DD7, you know, stuff like that. But uh, we moved to uh, Long Island and uh, I was in fourth grade. And, uh, you know, obviously didn't know anybody. I was a new kid there. It was a... Uh, December of the year, so the school year had already started, and uh, met made a few friends, but uh, one of the friends I made, a buddy named Brett, and uh, he was a, uh, you know how when you're a kid you have uh, weekday friends and weekend friends, because, you know, the weekday friends were in the neighborhood, you could just, you know, ride the bike over there, and then you had the weekend friends that were like maybe a mile or two away, so you needed a ride to get there when you were uh, of that age. Uh, now, Brett was a weekend friend. And, uh, together we, uh, sort of viewed ourselves as, uh, like, would-be fantasy writers. One of the things we clicked on pretty quick was, uh, an affinity for, uh, writing. And, uh, we wrote some, you know, very childish, uh, <laughs> fantasy fair. Um, basically ripping off everything we could from, uh, The Legend of Zelda and Final Fantasy and The Black Cauldron. Any, anywhere where, uh, there was... A medieval bent or a fantasy bent, we 
just took <laughs> as many ideas as we possibly could. And uh, one of the things that uh, Brett was into was uh, D&D, or I guess it would have been a D&D at the time. And uh, if you know anything about me, it's that I, I have trouble sitting still. Uh, even even sitting here talking to you right now, I'm fidgeting in my chair like a, like a lunatic because I just uh, I have trouble sitting still. And uh, the idea of playing Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, uh, it always appealed to me, but I knew that I wouldn't be able to... I knew I wouldn't be able to just commit to uh, the amount of time you'd need to put into it to really uh, fully appreciate it. And uh, I promise we're getting into ElfQuest eventually here, but uh, he uh, he had all the source books, and uh, one of the things we did is that uh, he would roll for characters, and I wanted to be part of this somehow, but uh, like I said, I didn't think I'd really be in it to play. I mean, this was around 1989, 1990, so, you know, there were things like Dragon Quest or Dragon Warrior, uh, Final Fantasy, Ultima, uh, the gold box games, the uh, Dungeons and Dragons gold, blo- gold box games. So I mean, there was stuff that I could do that was in the vein um, of uh, of role playing, but the actual pen, paper, tabletop deal, uh, I just didn't see myself doing it. But as mentioned, I, I wanted to be a part of it, so uh, he would roll for characters, and uh, I would uh, draw them. You know, I would just draw the characters out, uh, design them uh, with, you know, to him telling me how he wants them to look, and I would draw them. Uh, for a fourth grader, I was a pretty decent artist, and uh, sitting here as a, you know, a 39-year-old, I'm still a pretty good artist for a fourth grader. So, it's uh, it's all good. Uh, you know, when you're uh, when you're like the, I don't want to say star artist, but an artist that people know can draw in elementary school. You have that moment of profundity when you enter uh, junior high and all the elementary schools converge and then you realize that uh, maybe you weren't quite as good as you thought and uh, I had that moment uh, but it, it, alas I did uh, draw these characters for him and uh, had a lot of fun doing it it was uh, really made me feel like I was part of it I'm not sure if uh, any of these characters ever went on a campaign I guess you'd call it I'm not sure if they did anything but fill a binder on his uh, shelf, but uh, it was fun to do. And uh, one day I went over, and uh, he showed me these characters, and they looked awesome. Just these these drawings. And, uh, you know, like, I looked at them, and uh, I think initially I was a bit offended because they were so much better than what I could do. <laughs> and... Uh, I've never been able to deal well with that kind of a thing, but uh, I was—I uh, just didn't know what to make of these things. They were just fully fleshed out, uh, just wonderfully uh, modeled characters. And uh, I asked who did them because I assume maybe, maybe his father helped out, or uh, maybe he has a cousin who's you know a famous artist. <laughs> and uh, he told me that he drew them, and. Uh, and then he showed me a book that uh, really changed the direction of uh, of my free time for the uh, 30 years following, uh, 30 years plus following. It was the ElfQuest Gatherum. Now, uh, the ElfQuest Gatherum is a collection of, like, uh, ephemera and back matter having to do with uh, ElfQuest. I didn't know what ElfQuest was. I, uh, I thought maybe it was just a... Uh, 
another module of uh, role-playing, but he showed me these uh, this two-page spread that had uh, character models on it. These were featureless, just outlines of characters. And uh, he told me that he had traced them and uh, filled them in, you know, with what he wanted, what weapon-wise, armor-wise, you know, facial feature-wise. And, uh, and I was blown away. I had never seen anything like this before. Uh, th- these things might have been in the D&D books itself, but I, I guess I just never noticed. But uh, I saw these, just these wonderfully flushed out characters. And uh, he decided he wanted to do like a, uh, I don't know if it was like a tribe of characters or a family of characters that was like in that style. So uh, he lent me the book uh, for the next couple days to... Uh, to design these characters, and uh, and I did, you know, I took it home and uh, I drew out the characters. And before bed, I figured, you know, hey, you know, why not look through this thing? You know, why not see what this uh, what this book has to offer here, insofar as content other than these these character models. And uh, I flipped through it and I bounced around and uh, eventually read the whole thing. And it was just. Uh, I knew it was something that I wanted to know more about, and I didn't know that it was a comic. I, I, I think I I got the gist that it was a uh, a story. There was a story attached to it, but uh, never considered that it was a something that came out in a single issue format. And uh, I, you know, I went back to school, gave him the book back, and asked, you know, hey, have you have you ever read the book? And he produced the first two. Complete ElfQuest trades. These are the Fall of the Tree Press uh, trades uh, that came out around the 10th anniversary of ElfQuest. Uh, it was the first uh, Fire and Flight and the Forbidden Grove. And uh, that <laughs> Fire and Flight and the Forbidden Grove and the ElfQuest Gatherum and maybe like three Garfield uh, books, that kind of comprised the graphic novel section of the uh, Kanekwa Public Library back in uh, the late 80s. So uh, we cleaned them out regularly. But uh, he showed me the books, and uh, I, I remember reading them in class um, when I was probably supposed to be doing something else. But was just blown away. Just didn't uh, didn't know what to make of it. And it's funny because, like, when you when you're, or at least when I was that age, and I'm reading something in a in book format, something that has a spine, you know, even though it is sequential art and it's clearly a comic book, I didn't put two and two together. To realize that it was a comic book um, One thing it did tell me Was that uh, graphic novels Were expensive uh, <laughs> These were $20 books back in the uh, Mid to late 80s So that, that kind of threw me for a loop But uh, I wasn't I wasn't quite sure what to make of it um, And uh, you know Over the next several months uh, Either he would have the books out At the library or I would have them out at the library We just like, kind of traded And uh, just reread the same you know, a couple hundred pages every every time out. And, you know, eventually, you know, Volume 3 would show up and Volume 4 would show up. Um, and, and, you know, it just blew our minds every time we picked up a new uh, a new volume. Now, the thing about these uh, Father Tree Press ElfQuest books is in the back, there was, a, there was a, like, back matter there. There, was, uh, there were covers, um, sketches, a, a whole bunch of cool stuff. And uh, 
Some of the stuff they had there were covers to the Warp Graphics versions of the single issues, as well as the Marvel Epic covers, which that's kind of when the uh, you know the light bulb went off, and I realized you know whoa these were these were comics you know this was something that came out as individual issues, which made me think this is probably still coming out you know this is probably an ongoing thing, and uh, I gotta find it and. ElfQuest isn't the kind of thing that uh, that I'm going to find at like a 7-Eleven or a Genovese. So it caused me to pull out the phone book and uh, look for a comic book store. And I'd never thought to do it before. You know, I, I, you know, folks of my vintage, uh, you know, going into their 40s, uh, we all have like the similar story that, you know, comics were just around, you know. It's something that we all say because it's true. I mean... Your father was on his way home from work, he'd grab you a couple of comics because they were 60 cents, you know, and you'd have something to do or something to throw in the corner of your room if you wanted. But, uh, you know, all the comics I had were uh, were things like Star Wars and uh, Spider-Man, stuff like that. I really wasn't a uh, collector at the time, at you know, <laughs> at the ripe old age of seven or eight. But uh, I knew that if I wanted to read ElfQuest, I was going to have to venture into a comic store. And that's uh, when I had a uh, little bit of a crisis, because it's funny how things change as you age. I didn't like comics because of the ads. I, I The ads just turned me off from the entire thing. I uh, I, I thought it made the, the comics feel cheap, and... Uh, didn't want them. Just, <laughs> just didn't want them. I figured, I'll just buy these. I'll, I'll save up my money and I'll buy these fat twenty dollar uh, trades or whatever I called them back in the day. And, uh, but then I decided I wanted to to keep up with it, so I had to go to the comic book store. And I mean, now uh, the the ads are some of my favorite parts. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes so much better than the story within uh, for for certain comics. It's a uh, it's unbelievable. But uh, I went through the phone book. Uh, there were only a couple of stores in the phone book. This is a, a couple of years before the big boom. Uh, and uh, the closest one to me was Amazing Comics. It was in Sayville, New York on uh, Gillette Avenue. And uh, it was run by a fellow named Bob Nastassi. And that was the first comic book store I ever went to. It was probably about uh, maybe two maybe three miles away. Not not a, not a long jaunt uh, by any stretch. But, uh, you know, I, I got my parents to give me a ride, and I went in there, and I asked about ElfQuest. And he said, uh, said oh, you know, there, there's no ElfQuest coming out right now. And uh, then he said, you could check the back issues. And I didn't know what a back issue was. <laughs> you know? Um, I, I was like gobsmacked that uh, that this store kept old books and uh, he pointed me in the direction and it was a very small store it was like a utility closet basically um, it didn't have terribly many back issues but at the time it was the most comics I'd ever seen in my life and uh, he pointed me over and uh, I went right over to the E section and the first comic book back issue that I have ever seen was Electra Assassin. Um, and uh, it's got a very distinct Bill Sienkiewicz covers. It's uh, something you remember seeing. What I remember seeing more than the cover art 
was the cover price. <laughs> there was a price tag for uh, $10 on it, which made my my heart, my little heart just sink because I'm like, there's no way I'm going to be able to afford these books. Um, and I figured I was going to be walking out of there empty-handed, and I was just so down. And uh, I kept filing through. And I finally came across a couple of issues of ElfQuest, and uh, they did have an inflated cover price on them, but... Uh, they were only $2 each, which, uh, at the time, I mean, especially after seeing a $10 issue of Electra Assassin, uh, $2 just seemed like I was stealing it, <laughs> you know? Um, I mean, comics at the time, new comics at the time, were probably around a dollar-ish. So $2 wasn't, uh, too far out of the realm of possibilities. Not that I'd ever bought a dollar book at, at that point. And it, it's funny to look back at that now, because... You know, depending on where you're at, uh, a $2 for an issue of ElfQuest might be like a crazy high price or a crazy low price. You know, and at the time I was nine years old, I didn't know, I didn't know left from right as it came from comics. So I, uh, I bought two issues. It was, I want to say it was issues 11 and 12 or 12 and 13 of the Marvel Epic run. It was a, Around the time of the Forbidden Grove uh, trade, and uh, it had uh, Cutter and Skywise um, meeting with uh, oh, what were their names in it? It was the it was the stand-ins for uh, Wendy and Richard Peeney, um, Nona and Adar, something like that. I don't remember. I probably should have uh, <laughs> done a little more research before uh, taking the big breath and entering into a spiel, but. Uh, uh, they were at a cabin, and uh, the trolls came, and Picknose took uh, New Moon, the sword, and we found out the secret of the sword, or some of the secret of the sword, and uh, I, I just, I, I treasured it. I treasured these two books, and uh, realized that, you know, I wanted more of it. And, and it's funny, because I had actually read those stories already, but having them in my hands as as, you know... As a comic book, instead of uh, you know the big book, the big trade, it it made such a big difference to me. And uh, you know, I use a term gestalt a lot, and I I'm not even sure if I'm using it right. But uh, seeing the ads for things like you know Fall of the Mutants and stuff, and there all the other great stuff that Marvel was putting out, it really just put you in there, and uh, and it's just something I'll, I'll never forget. Um, so my my, my modest. <laughs> ElfQuest collection was two books, and uh, I would go back probably, I don't know, every three weeks, maybe every month, and uh, there would generally be a couple of new back issues of ElfQuest that I would pick up, and uh, before long I had a, a nice little stack, um, and uh, then I we went to a, uh, a flea market, the Atias flea market, or the Atlas flea market. I don't remember which, what the what the actual name was, but it was across the street from the Sunvet Mall on uh, Sunrise Highway. And uh, I went in there. Uh, we we went on there on a weekend, and there was a little comic stand there. And uh, this is you know before Death of Superman, so uh, there wasn't you know five hundred comic booths in this place. It was just uh, the one or two, and. They had back issue bins, and I flipped through them, and I found ElfQuest uh, number six, the uh, Marvel Epic run, and it had uh, Bearclaw fighting um, Mad Coil, I think his name was, 
it's a a big worm monster thing that uh that really informed the direction of the book early on or at least in flashbacks and uh and i i you know i recognized the cover because it was in the first the first trade collection the fire and flight and uh it's funny, I, I flipped through, I'd find that one, eyes beaming, and uh, <laughs> this is my first big time comics book, comic books purchase. It was $5. Imagine paying $5 for a comic book. And uh, you know, you, I pulled it out and turned to my mother and I was like, this is serious. You know, <laughs> you know I was a serious comic book collector if I bought that. And... Uh, and I did. I did. I, I spent five dollars, and uh, I was just the uh, the perfect little comic book enthusiast. You know, I was uh, the big time collector, um, spending my uh, my pretzel money on uh, <laughs> on comics uh, at my at my elementary school. Uh, one of the teachers would go to like uh, the Price Club or whatever whatever Sam's Costco, whatever it was back in the eighties. And he would buy a big box of frozen soft pretzels. And he would sell them every day. Uh, you'd, they would take an order at the beginning of the day, and then at lunch, you'd get your pretzel delivered. And it was like a buck a pretzel, which means he probably made like 75 cents on each one. But uh, I'd get a buck every day for a pretzel. This is before I was buying, you know, school lunch on the regular, I guess. And uh, for a few weeks, I knew my trip to the comic store was coming up, and uh, I, I saved my pretzel money. And uh, it bought me uh, it bought me ElfQuest number six, which was the earliest ElfQuest comic that I had in my collection for a very long time. Um, and it was always on the top of my stack, and I was just so proud of it. Um, I didn't even I wouldn't even read it because of how I valued it. And I'd already read the story in the trade, and it, by then I might have already actually had the first uh, volume. I'm not sure if I did or not. But uh, I wouldn't even open it. I wouldn't even take it out of take it out of the bag. And uh, something that I think a lot of uh, newer collectors might take for granted is that not everything came bagged and boarded. A lot of stuff came bagged, but for something to come with an actual backing board wasn't all that common. You'd uh, you would just get a bagged book, so you could still fold it, you still crumple it. It was still there was no protection there other than maybe from the sun. But these. Uh, these bags, and I still have, uh, I still have them in their original bags that I got them in. They've got like this milky opacity to them. It's like, it, it like really has like a tinge. The uh, the the ba- the the bags, and uh, some of the cheapest stuff. It's probably eating away at the comics as we speak. But uh, but yeah, I had it in that little bag, and uh, I wouldn't even open it because I was just so proud. To be a big time comic book collector, I, you know, I spent five whole dollars on a on a collectible <laughs> comic book. Um, it was uh, probably a while later when uh, I found ElfQuest number one, the uh, Marvel book, and that was at uh, Amazing Comics. It was on a it was actually on a weekend, and uh, a buddy of mine rode the bikes up there, and we found ElfQuest number one, and. Uh, and uh, I, I don't even, I, I'm not sure if he was collecting ElfQuest because uh, it didn't seem to be in any kind of question whether or not I'd get it or he'd get it. It was just assumed that I'd get it. But uh, I actually had to ride back home 
to uh, to get all the loose change I had. So I paid for ElfQuest number one because it was a fi- another five dollar uh, investment, and I actually had to pay for this thing in nickels, dimes, pennies, <laughs> anything I had because I I couldn't let ElfQuest number one pass me by. You know that's. You know, if ElfQuest number six was serious, then ElfQuest number one was super, super serious, and uh, I definitely couldn't let that slip through my fingers. And uh, he wouldn't hold the book for me either. Which, I mean, looking back now, it's like who who was going to go in there and buy ElfQuest number one? <laughs> you know, it's not like it was a hugely hot commodity. And uh, I think he was just trying to make sure I I hustled back and forth with the money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and it's so funny thinking about this now since I've I basically live in the quarter bins now in the dollar bins and I've seen all of the ElfQuest books there. I mean, I've seen entire runs of the the 32 issue uh epic run in the uh in the quarter bin. It's uh it's silly to to think about now. Uh how just how crazy I was for it back in the uh Back in the late 80s, early 90s But, uh, you know, times change And the end of the comics industry certainly changes as well And, you know, I, I kept up with ElfQuest uh, Through the trades, uh, through the library And um, anytime there was a gift holiday I'd, I'd ask for one and uh, generally, you know, get it Or, uh, you know, the, you push for the good report card gift or you, you do whatever you can when you're a kid to get something, right? So <laughs> I probably made a little jerk out of myself trying to get all of them And, uh, and I have I, I, For the longest time, the only one I was missing was uh, volume 4 of the Father Tree Press ones And uh, I found that at a used record store probably 5 years ago So I finally have all 8 of the original Father Tree Press ones And, uh, and you know, I'm looking at them right now They're still on the shelf And uh, they still get pulled out every now and again for a look or two Um I uh, I credit ElfQuest as a kind of a gateway drug for me um, because uh, because I was in there looking in the shops looking for ElfQuest. I was in the store during you know some pretty big days in the early '90s. You know, uh, X Men number one, the uh, Claremont and Lee book. You know that one came out and it just it took it took the industry by storm. It took the stores by storm. Uh, it used to be where I'd, I'd be the only guy in the store, but suddenly there were a bunch of people crammed into that little utility closet, you know, trying to trying to get the, the new number one or the new whatever, or the McFarlane Spider-Man. Or, it was just a, a maddening time. And uh, it's not hard to get wrapped up in that. And I did. <laughs> you know, I, I got really just sucked into it and... Started collecting X-Men and, and started collecting, you know, the McFarlane Spider-Man and, and you just never look back Then, you know, Image hits and you're buying Spawn And before you know it, it's, uh, that, that pretzel money and, your, and the lunch money is, is going to new books And you're, you kind of, you kind of don't visit the back issue bins as much as you used to So, uh, ElfQuest kind of became a, uh a secondary thing for me It was whenever I had extra money Maybe I'd dip into the bins and look But uh, generally speaking I didn't have a whole lot of spending money It was uh, it was all on the X-Men And then, you know, on some image And then the death of Superman happens And, uh, and you know, you just The money just goes somewhere else 
Um, I didn't really walk away from ElfQuest so much uh, until the New Blood series started, which were a series of full-color uh, ElfQuest, but they were uh, by folks who weren't the Peenies. So you'd have like a John Byrne story in there. You'd have a bunch of different creators uh, giving their take on ElfQuest stories. Um, and uh, that just happened to come out around the time as another ElfQuest series. And that was another full-color series called The Hidden Years, which, uh, I don't know, I'm a big continuity and lore guy. Um, I don't like feeling left out of things uh, in comics and just in life in general. And I remember collecting the, uh, the, the Kings of the Broken Wheel series that came out. And, you know, actually, it might have just been the trade. I might have just bought the trade. But there was a scene in this uh, trade where the elves, they, they, they retire to a, to a forest. And there's a couple of pages where there were just numerous hash marks being, being chopped into a tree to, to, you know, allude to the passage of time. So, like, you know, you'd see, like, two little hashes to represent two years. And all of a sudden, you know, at the end of the two pages or the three pages, it was hundreds of hashes. So... It gave you the illusion that you missed a hundred plus years of uh, story, of lore, and uh, Hidden Years was going to flesh that in for us. Um, I I really just my my little brain couldn't process that. <laughs> I I needed everything to be in a row. I needed the linearity of uh, you know just tell the story as it goes, and uh, I didn't want to feel like I missed anything. So. Hidden Years came out, I bought the first few issues of that And just was lost, kinda And just, I felt detached from it Um, and then New Blood came out And the first issue was like, had like a $4 cover price on it And, uh, I was just like, I I can't do it I just couldn't, couldn't do it And if you know anything about me and collecting I'm, I'm like an all or nothing kinda guy it's kind of why I've gone the the DCBS route because I need to have if I'm collecting Superman I need to have all the Superman books. If I'm collecting X Men I need to have all the X Men books. You know they need to all be coming so I can feel like I'm keeping up with the entire line. And if I can't afford to do that, I just kind of I, I just kind of like clam up and I'm done. So uh, I, that's why I do DCBS because I with the discounts I can afford to do that kind of a thing. So with ElfQuest, I could no longer afford to uh, to keep up uh, with all my other quote-unquote comics responsibilities. Uh, I couldn't keep up with ElfQuest, so I kind of walked away from ElfQuest for a time. And I, I popped my head back in over the next, you know, decade plus. Uh, but came back in a big way uh, recently when uh, Dark Horse, intro- they did through Dark Horse Publishing, the, uh, the final quest. And uh, I kept up with that for the first few issues reading-wise, but then I just started collecting it because I wanted to read it in one big clump uh, after I caught up with everything else. Because they're, they're also releasing these just gorgeous, uh, new, complete ElfQuest, uh, big, omnibus-sized, uh, phone book-sized books through Dark Horse, and they're just, they're just gorgeous. Um, so I'm collecting those, so that'll get me caught up to where I need to be eventually. <laughs> And then I can work my way through the final the final quest. Easy for me to say, and have a have a you know a nice big cry at the end of that. Um, 
So yeah, that's uh, that's my time with ElfQuest, you know, and that's what got me into a comic book store for the first time, and uh, that's what got me uh, into all the other books, uh, the X Men, the uh, the DC books, every darn thing that there was here. Um, we're gonna hop over to the horns for a second, and then um, we're gonna go through ElfQuest number one in brief because. Uh, well, frankly, I've droned on a bit long here as it is, and uh, also Reggie and I did cover this as an issue, as an episode of the uh, Cosmic Treadmill. So uh, I'll link to that episode here, where you can hear our silly voices <laughs> as we as we act and uh, really go deep on the first issue of ElfQuest. But uh, for here, for the for the purposes of this program, we'll just do a brief brief look at it right after the horns. <laughs> Alrighty, now this isn't just ElfQuest number one, this is ElfQuest, the 25th anniversary special from DC Comics, had a cover date of September 2003. Stories called Fire and Flights by Wendy and Richard Peeney had a cover price of $2.95. Now, after a brief retelling of how the elves came to inhabit the world of two moons, Wolf Rider Chief Cutter and his companion Skywise look on as one of the, their tribesmen, Redlance, the Tree Shaper, is about to be sacrificed to the god Gotara by a group of humans. Now, the wolf riders spring into action before the sacrifice could be made, killing the human, uh, Talab, uh, Tabak, who is about to stab Redlance. They're able to stop those proceedings. They flee back to their halt and advise Redlance's life mate, Nightfall, that they made it in time. Meanwhile, the human, tri- human tribe mourns their fallen tabac and plans their revenge. They plan to burn the elves out of the forest. While Cutter and Skywise stargaze and reflect on the day's events, Cutter's wolf Nightrunner approaches with information. That information being, humans are coming, and with them they bring fire. Cutter sends this information among the wolf riders, and they prepare to defend their home. Now, sending is like a telepathic communication that the elves all have, and it's uh, rendered with a like a little stylized diamond and a different uh, voice balloon um, or voice bubble, word bubble, word balloon. What, however, we say that I say it differently every time. Back to the story. Uh, Cutter and the human chief have a uh, contentious exchange. Cutter warns that if the woods burn, both tribes will die. Uh, Maddened by grief and fueled by revenge, the human chief doesn't seem to care. He proceeds to begin burning the woods, and the wolf riders halt with it. The elves collect themselves, and at Cutter's direction head toward the caverns of the trolls. Once there, we meet the cantankerous Picknose, who initially refuses to aid the elves. With a little persuasion in the form of a dozen wolves simultaneously growling at him, he gives in. He will take them to speak with the troll king, Greymung. The wolf riders are there to call in a favor for the trolls for all the times the elves have shared meat and conducted trade with them. Ultimately, Greymung agrees to help, telling the wolf riders that over end, at the other end of the tunnel opens into a green and peaceful woods where they could start over. Uh, this is also the scene where Skywise procures his trademark lodestone shard that he wears as a uh, necklace, uh, which until now was part of a larger stone that Greymung had been using as a footrest. The trolls guide Cutter and the Wolf Riders to the other end of the tunnel, only to find that the tunnel doesn't open up to a green and peaceful land, but a angry <laughs> desert wasteland. Looks like the elves have been tricked. Picknose causes a rock slide, which blocks the elves from ever returning. And the issue ends with Cutter and his tribe looking toward the desert, 
wondering what lies ahead. Well, it's self-quest number one. Uh, <laughs> what is there to say? It's, it's an amazing issue. Um, it's probably the issue I've read more than any other of any book. Uh, because it was the only series that I'd collected, you know, at the time when I was young. And, uh, you know, when you're a kid, you could just read the same thing over and over and over again. I uh, just uh, love this issue. Can't get enough of it. Um, uh, Wendy Peeney's art. Uh, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's just amazing. Uh, it's something that I never would have expected to see. In comics, uh, this is, you know, going back a number of years, of course, but it just felt so ahead of its time. And it's still, it still holds up and it's still gorgeous today. But uh, I think that's one of the reasons why I really didn't see this as a serialized, uh, you know, single-issue comic book sort of a thing. It's just the, the caliber and quality of the art is just wild. I, I still consider uh, Wendy to be in, like, my top five artists of all time. It's... Just wonderful, wonderful work here, and uh, and in on my uh, blog post, I'd actually, I'd actually done a uh, a comparison of the art throughout the ages, uh, going into digital coloring and all that kind of stuff and touch ups, and uh, I'm gonna, I'll put that on the blog actually, because there's a picture of the warp graphics one where it's in black and white and it's it's beautiful and it's shaded, and then the epic one where it's in color for the first time. Then the Father Tree Press one, where it's a little flatter color because of the different quality of paper. It was glossy, thick stock instead of newsprint. And then into the uh, DC edition, the 25th anniversary, where, I mean, it's just tremendous. The uh, the coloring, the shading, uh, the light, it's just really something to behold. And, and I will definitely include that. With the show notes, because I think this is something that folks need to see, because it's it gets better every time, and uh, it's just amazing. Now the uh, the issue itself here, the twenty fifth anniversary edition, ends with uh, some text pieces with an interview with the uh, with the Peenies about bringing their property to DC Comics. Uh, the you know ElfQuest has been just about everywhere, and uh, it did you know had that stop at DC. And uh, they also discuss, interestingly enough here, how uh, DC and Marvel had initially turned down publishing ElfQuest back in the day, which is uh, really, really cool to just see that kind of a thing. It's uh, really eye-opening and enlightening. Now, uh, I definitely recommend this. Uh, the entire ElfQuest library, up to, uh, you know, before the final quest, is uh, it's available digitally for free online if you go to ElfQuest.com. And... Uh, if you're into digital comics, I'm, you know, I'm more into the, the paper comics. But uh, if, you know, free is free. <laughs> and you can experience a wonderful story um, for for nothing at all, just uh, just for a little bit of your time. And it's uh, it's pretty great that, that that resource is there for folks. And I'll link to that, of course, in the uh, show notes and on the uh, blog as well. Um, just know that there are a number of print options available if digital isn't your thing. Uh, you got the... These new complete editions from Dark Horse that are in black and white, but they are just gorgeous. Uh, they are just really, really nice, chunky books. You get a huge amount of story, and it's uh, and they look really, really nice on the shelf too. So uh, yeah, there's that. And uh, like I said, this uh, comes with a very, very high recommendation. Um, I am certainly biased, but uh, 
I do recommend you check it out. Okay, it's time for the hot take, and uh, we're sticking with Action Comics Weekly. Big surprise there, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> this is going to be the letters page for Action Comics Weekly, issue 613. And in it, they're going to be talking about Action Comics Weekly, number 602. And uh, let's hop right into it here. We're going to open up with a letter from Charles. He says, Dear Mike, uh, Mike Gold, the editor, Thanks for bringing back the anthology comic and making it better than ever. You hit the nail on the head when you pinpointed the main problems with such comics. Short story length and too much time between installments. By moving to a weekly format, you've solved both problems. I even found it hard to wait one week, as the stories really sparked my interest. (sighs) I originally bought the comic only for a peek at the new Blackhawk series, but as I read the other stories, I realized that there's a lot more here to be appreciated. Issue 601, that was the first issue, was rather ho-hum, except for the exciting Wild Dog story, but there was still enough to make me look forward to the next week. Time passed quickly enough, and soon I had ACW 602 in my hands. It was exactly the opposite of the previous issue. All the stories were incredibly exciting, except for the ho-hum Wild Dog story. Requiem, the Green Lantern installment, was one of the most powerful stories I've read all year. I was never much of a Hal Jordan fan, but this story made me one. Keep it up, Jim Owsley. It was also nice to see Deadman back, as he's always been one of my favorite peripheral characters from the DC Universe. Dan Jurgens has done a great job penciling, and Mike Barron's story is great. Now for The Secret Six, after issue 601, I was not too excited about the feature. In fact, I hated it. I thought they were all exciting. Um, but after Look What I F- Look What Fell Out of the Sky, I love The Secret Six. That's the story in issue 602. Mockingbird is one creepy fella. And there's Blackhawk. Wow! My congratulations to everyone involved in picking up where Chaykin left off. The story was great. The art was even better. Now let's get him back to into the skies where he belongs. P.S. The Superman strip is a great idea. It's nice to see Kurt Swan back drawing the Man of Steel. Well, uh, no. The Superman strip is not a good idea. It's actually a very bad idea. <laughs> it's, I mean, we're 15 weeks into it now at the blog, and it is just, ugh, very, very, very stagnant. And, uh, I mean, last week we read an issue or an installment where Superman opened a door. I mean, you waited a whole week, and Superman opened a door. Uh, <laughs> now, I do like how, uh, He wasn't too excited about Secret Six in the first issue, and uh, I definitely agree with that because I was just so confused um, by the Secret Six strip. Uh, Just so many characters I wasn't familiar with in both the old and new versions of the Secret Six. It kind of reminds me of the uh, Black Canary uh, serial that we're reading uh, now on the blog uh, as I record this. There is just so many names, so many characters, and uh, just not enough not enough story to support this many characters. And uh, it's kind of off-putting, and it's kind of... Uh, it, it feels like you're just, like, treading through molasses. It's pretty, uh, pretty dull. Um, now, Mike Gold replies to this letter, and he says, As I'm sure you've noticed by now, Charles, keeping Blackhawk out of the sky is actually one of the... Is a more difficult task Although you'll have to admit He's no slouch with his feet on the ground either 
And uh, Blackhawk, for those first eight issues of Action Comics Weekly, Blackhawk was certainly a, the strongest uh, serial story and just uh, the, a bright point in the week of reviewing, uh, which really, really surprised me. It came out of nowhere. I figured Blackhawk was going to be a uh, kind of a slog because I'm just I, I'm just not of uh, the war comic bent, uh, and this one really. It's uh, not so much a war comic. It's more a uh, Blackhawk as a almost a mercenary, like a soldier of fortune. He kind of works for who pays him, and it's uh, and he works for thing. He works on missions where he might be able to get something out of it. And I thought that was really cool. And uh, the just the format of Action Comics Weekly really uh, really worked for that sort of a story. Uh, really, just just love it. Um, Requiem, that Green Lantern story was very strong It was the funeral of Kat Matui And uh, really, that, that that little arc really hit the ground running um, I wish it could have kept up that energy and intensity throughout Because it it did kind of dip And if you're following the blog now, we're into the Freak Show storyline Which ugh, <laughs> is probably the low point of the uh, Green Lantern action comics run But uh Let's move on to our next letter by Robert. He says, Dear Action Comics, First, for your statistics, I'm a 38-year-old college professor. I read I read DC Comics when I was a kid, and I've recently gotten into collecting the old stuff and reading the new stuff. In general, ACW's format is nice. I especially like the diversity of topics, themes, and art. The stories involve all sorts of ethics. The art is an interesting mix of styles of line and color. Keep up the diversity and the attention to artistic detail, and you'll have a winner as well as a moneymaker. On a basic level, I like the format of multiple stories. I assume that over time we'll see different characters. Please be wary of overdosing people with plot stalls and cliffhangers. Read two pages, boom, cliffhanger. Read two more pages, boom, train's gonna hit some guy. Another cliffhanger. And so forth. He is clearly talking of the Superman story. Overdose of non-closure. I hope you're not stuck to the format of two pages per Superman story and seven to eight pages for each of the other stories. Why not have each issue include at least one complete story, say 10 to 12 pages? Thanks for doing what you do. P.S. is the cover of Action Comics Weekly 602 a first, the first non-Superman cover? Well, as a uh, college professor uh, into statistics, uh, Action Comics number two didn't have Superman on the cover, so uh, what do you end up? Um, he is dead on though with uh, the the Superman serial. It uh, it is an overdose of cliffhangers. Um, even the one that we uh, we read this week, it has Superman pushing a guy in a wheelchair into a wall, and the guy's dead, and that's how it ends. So this guy is dead. It's every. <laughs> it's like. Ten panels to the story, if we're lucky. Uh, it's it's really just a not great. It's just not great. It's hard to write about in two page in in these two page installments. It's hard to care about in these two page installments. I really just don't know what they were thinking, other than making sure that Superman had a presence in Action Comics. Um, not the best. <laughs> now, uh, Mr. Gold replies and says, Actually, Robert, Superman became the regular cover feature with Action's 19th issue, having appeared on only seven of the book's previous covers. 
Some 25 years later, on issue 299, Supes yielded the cover to his cousin Supergirl. So while not exactly unheard of, non-Superman covers have been rare. Until now, that is. And uh, yeah, I think in the time we've been doing this, uh, for the 15 weeks, I think Superman's only had two covers. So yeah, uh, not including uh, 601, of course, which had everybody. Our next letter comes from London, England. It's uh, Malcolm, and he says, Dear Mike and Brian, It'll take too long to comment on each series and every letter, so I'll just say a few things that come to mind. Most important, all the series except Superman suffer from pacing problems. What? Are you kidding me, Malcolm? <laughs> I, know you warned, I know you wanted an explosive first issue, but there was just no need to kill off Katma quite so quickly. There should have been more build-up. Well, I disagree, but uh, maybe we'll get to that at the end. There's no need to end each eight-page story with a cliffhanger or to pack as much into those eight pages as you normally would into a full-length story. In Secret Six so far, we've had a quick look at the original group, a hurried introduction of, to a potential new group, a plane crash seemingly killing off the original Six, a demonstration that Mockingbird can control the devices he's fashioned, and the predicament of a blind Vic Summers wandering into traffic. It's all too much to take in. That I agree with. For the most part, only Blackhawk has avoided this problem, reading more like it, it should a 32-page story told in chapters. Blackhawk, Black Hawk, moreover, is set on a more adult level than the other strips. I hope this doesn't cause any problems. Jan's comments about looking up Cynthia's dress, their mutual sexual magnetism, and his sticking his nose down into her cleavage were all perfectly in character, but not quite in line with a Superman Sunday comic strip. Rick Burchett's art, by the way, is excellent. I also love George Perez's cover. This is issue 602. He must be the industry's leading cover artist now. The great Gil Kane, however, is hardly producing his best work on the interior Green Lantern strip. Some panels, such as the splash page, have a lot of care put into them, and it shows in the emotion that comes through, but others are just crude sketches. Finally, I'm glad to see Max Collins introducing a topical note into the Wild Dog stories in the shape of right-wing ultra-conservatism. It's his trademark, and a good one. And uh, take care, Malcolm. Okay, so let's go to uh, killing Kat Matui here. I think that... I think the way she was killed... Uh, I, while I, you know, I'm not a fan of her dying, period, I think the way it happened was uh, important because it was... Uh, it's the kind of thing that happens, you know, things happen out of nowhere without warning. And, uh, I think that really set the tone for Action Comics Weekly. That was the first issue, or the first story of the first issue of this new endeavor. And it ends with the sudden and unpredictable passing of, uh, of a somewhat established character. I think that really set the tone going forward, and I think it was important to do so right out the gate. And, uh, you know, I, not everything needs to be built to. You know, it's, are we going to have three installments of Star Sapphire threatening to kill Catman and then finally doing it? Or her seeing her snooping off the, you know, corner of a panel watching Katmatui and then finally doing it? I just don't see the need to stretch that out. Um, he talks about Secret Six being a bit much, and uh, he's right. Uh, that first chapter was very off-putting because... So much happened, and not enough was uh, not enough was explained. 
And the fact that we're using Secret Six characters, the original Secret Six characters that might have appeared less than a dozen times ever at this point, it's hard to really uh, expect a reader, especially a reader of action comics who might just be reading Superman comics, to really know, understand, care what's going on here. And uh, the fact that we get... The original six, we get this new six. I, I'm not even sure they all got names in the first issue. I'm pretty sure we didn't know they were all handicapped in the first issue. I, I think we knew Vic had his hand, I mean, Vic had his eyes, his blindness, but I don't think everyone else had been fleshed out at that point. So, definitely a lot going on, and uh, Dan Spiegel's art really grew on me, but initially, it was a little weird. It was a little, uh, it was just, it was just very different. Speaking of different, Black Hawk being a more adult-oriented uh, story, it's very true. But I mean, it is coming off a shaken series, so it's it, it, to not do that might be a little uh, unfair, I suppose. Uh, and I mean, looking at it today, it's it's relatively tame uh, stuff. There, uh, I'm sure folks could be offended by it, but uh, at the same time, it and it's not an excuse, but it it could have been a lot worse. <laughs> <laughs> if we jumped into the uh, the 90s and the ma- the manner of dress or undress some of the characters had in the 90s. Um, I do uh, think it's funny that he mentioned Cynthia's uh, attraction or sexual magnetism when uh, we do find out later on that she is a uh, woman of the cloth. Uh, <laughs> that's enough for uh, Mr. Malcolm here. Let's jump over. I'm going to turn the page, which will be very annoying. Uh, this is Robert Lane from uh, Birmingham, so well, Birmingham, Alabama. He says, Dear Sirs, congratulations on your first continuing weekly title. I'm enthralled to say the least. Least. Black Hawk by Grellin, Dead Man by Baron would be worth $1.50 a week alone. But add in the return of Marty Pasco on Secret Six, no less, and a neato Kino, don't make you don't don't it make you remember Superman Center Spread rendered by Kurt Swan. I love it. The only feature I'm not truly pleased with after the first two issues is Green Lantern. After the surprising and, in my opinion, unnecessary demise of the Green Lantern core, it's nice to see that Hal and some of the crew are still active. But gosh, fellas, what did Katma do to deserve the slice-and-dice treatment she received at the hands of Star Sapphire? Katma wasn't one of my personal favorites from the old core, but her sudden and, again, unnecessary death was far from something I would wish for her. I was also bothered by John's confrontation with Hal. One would think that in a time of such anguish, Hal—I'm sorry—John would turn to Hal for support, not blame, Uh, not blame him for what happened. Sapphire might have had reason to hate Hal personally, but she's also been a foe to the entire core, something John must certainly realize. Hopefully, John's behavior will be explained. The Green Lantern segment did have its bright spots, though. Gil Kane's art is always welcomed, and seeing the old GL logo on the splash page was kind of nice, too. Why wasn't it used on the cover as well? The, he must not know that I'm doing, uh, I'm doing those personalized covers, so there you go. The other series have been quite entertaining thus far, especially Dead Man, Blackhawk, and The Secret Six. Any more 60s or 70s revivals planned? I wouldn't mind seeing up-to-date interpretations of Plastic Man or the New Gods myself. A few more questions, and they are... Just how permanent is the current six-series plan? 
Should we expect to see all six features, plus the forthcoming Black Canary and Night Hawk, I'm guessing means Nightwing, still in ACW a few years from now? If ACW is as successful as it should be, can we plan to see more weekly series, anthology series, or both? Is Roger Stern being considered as John Byrne's replacement on the regular Superman title? He would seem to be the logical choice. Thanks for listening. I'll see you in number 603 in just seven days, man. Okay, so here's another one who is not too pleased with Katma's passing. And again, I understand that. I get that. Uh, you could argue that it was unnecessary, but I do appreciate what it did for uh, for the mandate of Action Comics Weekly. It's a uh, anything-can-happen uh, sort of a thing where, I mean... Deaths in comics, how often do they stick anyway? I mean, Katma's back now. But uh, you just don't know what's going to happen. And uh, I think, as far as cliffhangers go, I think that was a, a pretty good one. Um, John jumping down Hal's throat, I feel like that's warranted. I don't have a problem with that. Because, uh, you know, put yourself in John's shoes for a second. You know, he just lost his wife, and the person who killed his wife said, Hey, I did this to get at Hal. She didn't say I did this to get to the core. She didn't say I'm angry at the core. She said, tell Hal I came for him. So I totally get that uh, John would be upset with Hal, especially since Hal's been riding his couch for God knows how long, and he's been wanting him out of his apartment. <laughs> you know? Hal's nothing but a burden at this point. And, uh, and I think that, that having John jump down his throat is just tipping that first domino, because as the Green Lantern series moves on, we do see how detached he becomes from the... The main superhero uh, community You mean we have that issue where Where everybody on his friends list Tells him to go take a hike And uh, I think establishing that Hal is a dude on the outs And a guy who is looked at as Something of a goof off and a failure is uh, I think that's important to establish uh, early on So I have no problem with that uh, It is interesting that he uh, That uh, Robert here Says that he was really, really big on the uh, Gil Kane art When uh, Maurice said that the Gil Kane art seemed phoned in I guess it's all, you know, art is a Is subjective the one where uh, where it's your own opinion? Subjective, objective, one of those It's the one where it's your opinion uh, Let's take a look at uh, Mr. Gold's reply to Robert He says, to answer your queries in reverse order Yes, Roger is taking on the writing chores on the Superman Monthly With art by Kerry Gamble Another weekly comic? I don't know. And I don't want to be the one that brings it up to Mike Gold. Okay, so maybe this is Brian Augustine doing the answering here. And finally, as to the question of your of the permanence of our current features, only the readers can actually answer that by voting. The readers will tell us which features live and which will pass on into comic book limbo. So yes, uh, I, I mean, these this didn't last for years to come, but... Uh, the six-story deal is permanent, except for a few uh, a few bits here. I, there's going to be an issue far later on where there are two Nightwing installments in a single issue. Um, and there are also a couple of crossovers. There's the Crash of 88 that happens. And then the final issue is a uh, single story as well. But uh, other than that, as far as I know, and I, I've done a little... A little triptych on it. I think uh, I think it's going to be six to a book, other than those three uh, those three exceptions. Uh, next one, and this is from prolific letter hack, the Mad Maple from Canada, T M Maple. 
it's a uh, very rare you pick up a DC comic from oh goodness the uh, Bronze Age to I guess the uh, late '80s where TM Maple is not a uh, a mainstay in the letters pages. Now, his letter states, "Dear Action is, I was relieved to see Hal Jordan's." I'm sorry, Hal Jordan conjecture in 602 that John Stewart's reaction to Cat Matui's must be due to some abnormal and temporary cause, not indicative of some new facet of his personality. Uh, truth to tell, even if this is indeed true, John's reaction has been a surprise and a very puzzling one at that. Granted, the death of his beloved Catma must have been a huge shock, but still John has performed quite uncharacteristically. He is a courageous and experienced adventurer and hero. He has faced great tragedy before and conducted himself very well. Perhaps this is the biggest shock of his life, but his baseless and confused accusations are still unexpected. We can only hope that this is indeed a temporary circumstance, not the beginning of some new character twist for this admirable character. If I can hold out some reasonable hope that Jon Stewart will soon return to, quote, normal... It appears that nothing of the sort would be justified in Blackhawk's case. His rude and some and his rather let me start that over. His rude and rather disgusting demeanor in this issue leaves little doubt as to what sort of person he quote really is now. As things stand now, I don't think I'll be too sad to see this feature rotated out. The chief div- The chief diversion of this installment was seeing how many ways Rick Burchett and Pablo Marcos could depict Blackhawk fighting in the nude without showing his um thingy. Well, if you can't show it, I guess I can't use the word to describe it, eh? On the subject of good laughs, I really enjoyed the name of the Legion of Morality's main guy, B. Lyle Lehman. A great name. Or should I say, a devil of a name. In any event, I look forward to seeing Wild Dog use his keen intellect and Socratic dialogue to demonstrate to the Legion the error of their ways. Or isn't that the way these things generally work? Well, at least we may get to see a rip-roaring, book-burning or two before things wrap up. And I, I'm pretty sure we see a couple of those during the uh, moral stand. It's good to see the return of Martin Pascoe, as he delivers a compelling and well-balanced script for The Secret Six. And as always, it's a pleasure to see the work of veteran artist Dan Spiegel. As for Dead Man, well, he's still dead, but lively too. But this is no surprise from the oh-so-normal Mike Barron at the helm. Now, Mr. Maple. (laughs) Mr. Maple brings quite an intellectual look at uh, the first few installments of these uh, series here. Not a fan of Blackhawk. I enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot of fun. Uh, there were some very, uh, carefully rendered, uh, <laughs> panels of Blackhawk fighting straight out of the bathtub in the nude, which don't show anything, and they do leave a lot to the imagination, thankfully, I guess. Um, but here's another look at Jon Stewart acting uncharacteristically, and I, I don't know that there is a character, a normal character for having your wife murdered. I, I don't know that there is a normal for that. Um, I, I I think that any action that happens to someone who lost a spouse in a violent and unexpected way has to be considered normal for them because I mean I, I couldn't imagine it. I, and I'm a I'm a generally speaking I'm a ridiculously fatalistic guy who is scared of losing everyone around him. And I, I don't know how I would act if such a thing happened. 
Um, would I be subdued? Would I be a lunatic? Both? Neither? I don't know. So John acting, quote, uncharacteristically, I, I just don't buy it. I really don't buy it. And uh, and I, I definitely disagree. Um, B. Lyle Lehman. I, I don't know if that's a play on anything. I'm going to have to do some uh, some research on that. To, he says it's a devil of a name. So um, I wonder if it's a... Maybe the B stands for Beelzebub. I don't know. Or maybe it's just a mixed up word. I'll have to, I'll have to get back to you on that one. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to vamp so long as to throw it into a word to scrambler. Um, dead man. He, uh, well, I mean, it's kind of a boilerplate thing. He's dead, but lively. Yeah. What are you going to do? Um, he was a big fan of the secret six called it a well-balanced script, which, uh, I think most letter writers and, uh, your humble host here would uh, disagree with rather, uh, rather strongly. Uh, let's check out Mr. Augustine's reply here. He says, well, T, I'm sure you've seen by now just how right you were about that first Wild Dog storyline. I'm sure you'll agree that he so- Socratically dialogued those Legionnaire butts right off, not to mention how he platonically blowed him up real good. And uh, yes, Wild Dog did do a lot of uh, blowing up. I think that in the case of Jon Stewart, and to a lesser degree Blackhawk, you're not taking into account the fact that the people are often shaped by their circumstances. In both cases, both men have gone to prove themselves real heroes. Speaking of Blackhawk, as we were, and Marty Pascoe, as you were, we will be hap- you'll be happy to hear that Marty will be directing the fate of Blackhawk and his thingy, starting with Action Comics Weekly number 615 which uh, we actually just covered on the blog the other day. So Blackhawk's return, as well as Wild Dog's return, are up on the blog as this uh, as this hits the airwaves. And now Mr. Augustine wraps up with Marty's return and look forward... Um, wait. We are... Well, there we go. Oh, easy for me to read. Uh, we certainly share in your enthusiasm in welcoming Marty's return and look forward to a bunch of great stuff coming to, from him in the near future. So yeah, this is a uh, less positive um, letters page than we read last time out, and uh, and it also includes the Mad Maple, which is always a welcome, welcome if not uh, frustrating <laughs> letter to read. But uh, no, that's uh, that's a look at people's thoughts on the first couple of issues of Action Comics Weekly. And uh, one thing I wanted to mention is that I have actually uh, located. If you've listened to the past several episodes, and I don't assume anybody has, but if you have, we were reading um, we were reading comments and uh, letters from people who got the advanced copies of Action Comics Weekly, the uh, preview editions, the photostats, and I have located one of those. I have located one of the preview editions, and uh, it should be in my grubby hands by the next time we record, so... Uh, I'll share some of that with you all then, uh, if it if it does actually make it to my house. Who knows? But uh, fingers crossed it will show up, and uh, we'll discuss that and uh, actually get to take a look at what the folks were writing about and see if there was any kind of change in the interim between the photostat and the uh, published uh, newsstand or direct market copy. But... Uh, yeah, that'll do it for our hot take, and that will do it for our episode. I, uh, if you're still with me at this point, I definitely appreciate it. It's been a long, meandering, and tangential episode. Uh, so tangential that uh, Dan Jurgens tried to make a uh, an imprint out of it uh, back in the 90s. Um, now, if you have uh, anything you'd like to say to uh, me or Reggie, you can reach us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. 
You could uh, find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Chris and Reggie. You could check out the, the site for the show at uh, chrisandreggie.com where you'll find our archives and uh, all of our notes. I'm going to include some images this week. I, I want to take a picture of the... Uh, of those uh, character uh, sketch, those character forms from uh, the ElfQuest Gatherum, I want to share those on the site this week. So those will be there as well, uh, so you can see the very genesis of my comic book collecting and fandom career right there in front of you in in wonderful black and white. Um, <laughs> you can find us on Twitter, Cosmic T Mill, Reggie Reggie and Ace Comics. If you want to check out the site that this show is named after, you can do so at. Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com And actually, before we go When I reviewed this at the uh, at the blog I did get a reply from Richard Peeney And uh, this is something I wanted to share And I totally spaced it Richard Peeney wrote On March 3rd, 20, 2016 He said, thanks for a wonderful rem- rem- ah, Easy for me to say Thanks for a wonderful reminiscence It's been a long time since we took those first steps, and we're glad to see it all again through different eyes. And uh, that's actually the second time that I had received any correspondence from Richard Peeney. Uh, when I first got AOL back in probably 94, 95, uh, I, found, I found Richard Peeney on there. And, uh, and me and my friends, uh, I mentioned that we, were, we, we fancied ourselves writers, and uh, we wanted to start our own comic imprint. And... Uh, I had emailed Richard Peeney about <laughs> being a starting our own little comics publishing company. He was actually the first creator I ever reached out to on the internet, and uh, I, I I bent to zero a lot, just asking for hints and tips. And I mean, it was so silly to have like a fourteen or fifteen year old trying to start a comic company, but uh, he was very gracious. He was very patient, and he uh, <laughs> he was very cool, and. Uh, Really informed my opinion of uh, of uh, how comics professionals should uh, should conduct themselves with uh, with the with their fans, and uh, it's something I'll never forget. But uh, back to what I was saying here. If you if you uh, would like to read the blog, it's at chrisoninfiniteearths.com. And while you're there, if there's a book that I've reviewed that you want to hear me talk about or expand upon, just let me know, and uh, I'll put that on the list. Or if there's a book that you would like to come on and discuss, let me know, and we'll see what we can work out. I think that'll do it for now. Again, thank you for sticking with me here. It's been a long one. (laughs) And uh, that's about all I got. So, so long for now. Look forward to visiting again. See you later.